Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, Portland Trailblazers fans, and welcome to the off-season edition of the Blazers Edge podcast. The very first one, if you know us at all, you know we're going to be with you all summer long and the topics only get hotter as we go along. This is where we uh, make hay. This is what we're most famous for. This is why you remember us. It's because of how we interpret things in June and July. We did a lot of it last year. A lot of it came true. We're going to be at it again this year. I am here with co-host Dan Morang. We are two days now after the finish of the Blazers' foray into the 2017 NBA playoffs. The Blazers got swept, Dan. How did you feel about this series? Ooh, that was, a, that was quite a, a, a foray. That was a soiree. That was a dip the toes in the foray. It, was, it Ooh, wasn't a is, foray. Is... It, was a, wait, it wasn't a foray. It was a 4-0. <laughs> was... hey Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. they dipped their toes in the playoffs water, and uh, they, they didn't got like Got a bit saw. off. Yeah, they, they didn't like yeah. what they saw. And, I mean, this is a team, this, I mean, this, this Portland Trailblazers team, is two years removed from a rebuild. And expecting them to, to, to bang with really anybody in the top four, top five, is expecting a lot. Expecting them to compete, and I'm just saying compete, not stay even, compete with this Warriors team, was just asking too much. And that game four was a microcosm of exactly that sentiment. I don't think people fully understand how good and how great this roster is. It was one of the best ever last year. You added Kevin Durant to it. I don't care what you lost. You added the single most dynamic offensive player in maybe NBA history. Yeah, it's going to get better. And you saw what happened in that first quarter. I mean, yeah. I, I don't care how, how good that, that Blazers team keep fired up. They were going to get hit in the mouth like that no matter what, right? Yeah, this is what champions do. This is what veteran teams do. I just thought it was funny that Golden State wasn't even going for the gentleman sweep. I mean, they were they were having no mercy. They smelled blood in the water. Uh, and really, they, they did it in game three, too. I mean, that was more competitive, obviously. But uh, they knew what was going on. They knew every game they had to win. The Blazers emptied their load, took their best shot in game one, didn't get caught. Uh, they got close, but they didn't get the close win. Ish. <laughs> close ish. Yeah. 12 points. Hey, you know, 12 point loss. That's pretty close. And then Golden State just just took them to school the entire rest of the series. And this is what happens when basically you know how to play. You know, you're going to win uh, and that Golden State had the will to do it, that the, the laser focus to do it was pretty darn impressive. Now, that said, 
Portland's approach in game four was a little bit early vacation-ish, don't you think? Everybody not named Damian Lillard. I mean, I've got got to give Lillard a lot of props because, I mean, you want to talk about leadership and competitiveness and and a drive. I I don't know if it's just a pride thing with him or what. And I'm not saying the other guys don't care. It's just that I I think the reality dawned on them that there's no chance in this. But Dame just wasn't willing to to give into that. And I think that says something about him and his leadership ability and his leadership skills. But, yeah, I mean, outside Maybe, maybe, Dan, but... Okay, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with that, but I will offer a counterpoint, two of them, one, which is, one, okay, but scoring, I mean, you can always score. Even if you're losing, you like to score. And two, where's this leadership, where is this leadership on defense? Where, where's the holistic thing? I get, I get the ability to score 34 points. I get how important it is. I get it's not translatable to every player in the NBA. I appreciate all of this. At the same time, the Warriors won, and the Warriors are that good because they have leadership on both sides of the floor, and their players play two ways. The Blazers don't. The Blazers didn't. Yeah, and that comes down to uh, both roster construction and mentality. The, the Warriors team has two of the best defenders in the league, and everybody talks about Draymond Green, Defensive Player of the Year. Kevin Durant is what allows them to do all those things. I mean, the, the chase down block, the, the ability to switch in, literally one through five. I mean, the only time the Blazers really looked like they had the Warriors off balance was in game three when, when, when Nurkic was on the floor. And that was a little, little wrench in the system because they're not, the Warriors are not equipped to handle that kind of size and skill inside. That's, that's if they have any kind of kryptonite, that's it. And you, you saw it manifest itself ever so slightly. But, I mean, I, that, that's the, sure, that's the, that's the likely step. They have Al Farouk Aminu. They, here's the deal. They got guys who are decent defenders or who are supposed to be at least serviceable. It's not that they haven't got a defensive specialist or two. It just doesn't matter. Because there's so many holes in the dam that even if one is holding, the water just goes past the other four. Um, that, to me, if there's going to be real leadership, and I'm talking about not just happy to be in the playoffs, not just have to be at 41 or 45 wins, it's going to have to come on the defensive end, and it's going to have to evidence itself in wins where you are able to shut the other team down. Yeah, I think the the... If you're looking for a bright spot, and I'm, I'm trying, I really am, C.J. McCollum's defense on Clay Thompson in games one through three. Game four, oh, yeah. Clay was just on fire. But C.J., I think he showed a glimpse of the ability to be a plus defender. And that's, that's huge for this team. If Dane can just be a net zero on that end, I mean, not a negative, not a positive, just not getting torched, not getting caught on screens, not the guy that they just constantly single out and attack. If he can just get to that level and CJ grows to a level where he's a net positive, then you're looking at building on something. But you're right. It, 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 the leadership needs to come on both ends of the floor. And I, I, I don't know. I, I have faith that Lillard has one more gear left in him and that he can get to that level. Let's talk about CJ for a second, though. 
Do you think it's possible he's just got it in for Clay Thompson? Because Clay burned them last year. I mean, keep in mind that Steph Curry was out, right? Steph Curry was out in the second round for the first couple games. And the Blazers were going, we've got a chance. And then Thompson just buried them. And then this year, Thompson's got nothing. Absolutely nothing. Do you think Clay or CJ, like, put a, a target on Clay and said, if nothing else, this guy is not getting any on me? Uh, if so... Man, job well done because that was pretty darn incredible. Yeah, I mean, keeping Clay Thompson down for three out of four games is is impressive. I mean, because CJ had, long. yeah, I mean, CJ had the, his coverage pretty much the entire season. Every time they matched mm-hmm. up in all in, in all eight games. So yeah, I, I mean, I I think it. Tra- I hope it translates into a, a league wide effort for him. Uh, you know, on a nightly basis. I mean, if you get eighty percent of that on a nightly basis. That's probably good for two and a half wins more per season, legitimately. That, that would be totally sweet. Well, anything else about the Warriors series that stands out other than how awesome they are? I mean, uh, I think I think the Blazers did well enough, really, all things considered. The last game aside, they they did all right. They made a couple runs. Game one was great. Should they have even been in the playoffs? I mean, we talked about that ad nauseum leading up to them probably they should not have been if anything that game four was good for it was an emphatic exclamation point on the difference between a contender and whatever the blazers are right now and that difference is wide so at least we know that we'll talk more about in the year to come or summer to come but anything else in that warrior series that stood out for you yeah and the biggest disappointment for me were the other guys I mean, a lot of hopes were pinned on Alan Crabb kind of coming to the, to the fore here and, and showing that he the growth that he'd shown, you know, closing out the season. Maurice Harkless. Aminu acquitted himself probably as well as everybody expected him to. He had a couple really good games. He had a couple stinkers. But um, he, he was a guy that was out there. You could tell he was still mentally in it. Harkless was a guy that kind of seemed to tune out, and Crabb disappeared. I mean, he had 20 minutes on the floor, and he shot two or three. Those, yeah. those, those and kind even of Aminu, instances, though. man. I mean, it's just, those are killer. Aminu, uh, how many games do we have to see where the opponent, an opponent who has time to prepare for the Blazers in a series, just says, we're going to guard Lillard and McCollum, and we're going to leave you wide open. And I know Aminu had a, a productive game or two. But the enduring image of the series for me, for him, will just be that wide open shot that was not reliable still. There was How one, one instance in particular. Can you, the, how's that? Go ahead. Aminu caught the ball off the trap. Lillard was on the right-hand side. Aminu was on the left-hand side. Steph Curry was on the weak side. He was switched on to Aminu after, after the first pick and roll. And as the trap came, the ball swings to Aminu. Uh, Curry is on Aminu. He runs away from Aminu to defend the short corner where, where Crab is, is spotting up. Leaves Aminu completely. I mean, there's nobody around for 10 feet. I have never seen a defender run away on the catch like I saw what Steph Curry did. It literally, it made me stand up and, and get big-eyed like, are you kidding me? They are, their game plan was literally, this is not like, oh, hey, you know, they're probably going to allow him. No, they were daring him to shoot. And that's, that's incredible. I have never seen a team do that to a singular player, save maybe Tony Allen. I mean, not, and even then, not to that extent. It was insane. 
Yeah. How many, how much longer can you live with that? I mean, knowing that your goal is to go through hopefully four playoff series and you know that this is going to be the game plan of everybody with a brain and it's not working out at some point. Yeah, that's got to be adjusted. Ah, oh, well, we'll talk more about that. Let's let's move on. Speaking of some of these players to fireworks today hmm. in the exit interviews. Uh, of course, at the end of the season, everybody says goodbye. There's usually media interviews. There were plenty of them. Um, let's start with the centers. Let's start. I mean, let's start with the good news of the season. Uh, Yusuf Nurkic, uh, quote from him. First of all, he has a ton of confidence. Uh, second of all, he let us know that uh, he intends to resign. Uh, any bad news to that? I mean, there's nothing. First of all, there's nothing but company line to that, but that's exactly what you want to hear. You want uh, company line out of Nurkic. I mean, considering yeah, everything exactly. that happened in Denver, you want him to be to be happy Nurkic. I, I, I've said it before. I'm 90% sold on Nurkic being the guy in the sense that the guy that he's been here in Portland. Now, there's still 10% of that. I mean, it goes, if things go sideways, how's he going to react? Because everything that came out of Denver was the, the, the stuff of nightmares as far as a, a GM or coach is concerned. He was toxic. So I, I never hope or want for that other shoe to drop, but I want company line Nurkic when it comes to the, the personnel side of things. That, that's that's yeah, a good my, thing. Mike Richmond of Oregon Life uh, have the quote, Nurkic, I find what I want. If you're asking me, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Which, by the way, okay, Nurk's going to get paid. Paid, 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 big time. Uh, so there's no reason for him to go anywhere. But, I mean, look, this was one happy trailblazer. I mean, unreservedly, unabashedly happy trailblazer in a roster in a locker room that needs more happy, right? So, yeah. I mean, we're, we're all thumbs up to that incredibly. Now, you found a quote on Nurkic's health, right? Didn't he say somewhere he was going to yeah, take mean, we're, two we're, months? We're talking, you know, the, the, the timeline here for his original fracture was, hey, it'll be two weeks and we'll reevaluate him. Okay, this is the exact same injury that people will recall that Steve Nash suffered with the Lakers in game one in, in Damian Lillard's rookie year. Steve Nash was out until mid or late December. So he was out for two plus months. So when this happened to Nurkic, the fact that he even got back on the court was astounding. And you could see the effects. I mean, he was dragging a corpse up and down the floor. But now he's saying he expects it to take two to three months for his leg to fully heal. Why was he even yeah, on Joe the Freeman. floor? Joe Freeman of the Oregonian. Now, I mean, you know, you can parse out fully heal. Like, it's healed enough to play, but it's not going to be all the way better for two to three months. But provides a little bit of lens on the spin that comes out. And, yeah, two, when you read, it'll be evaluated in two weeks, thumbs up, wink, wink. Um, the wink, 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 wink is more important than the thumbs up in that kind of deal. Yeah, and coincidentally enough, kind of, it timed with the playoffs and, you know, yeah. trying to sell the rest of the season. Yeah, so, you know, like, all we want, all we need is for Nurkic to get healthy, right? That's the only thing anybody cares about. Get him healthy, get him back on the court for a full season, see what happens with the Blazers. Yeah, I don't want to now, see him in Las Vegas. <laughs> Well, I'm okay with him in Las Vegas. I just don't want to see him like bungee jumping or no. I mean, I mean, summer league. I I don't want to see him ready to go. I want to see him fully ready to go 
when everybody kind of gets together, if they do their San Diego trip or whatever in September, that's when I want to see Nurkic, you know, publicly uh, on the basketball court again. I, I want him fully healed. With, with the history of Portland bigs, I, I, this is something I just don't want to toy with. Speaking of Portland bigs, here we go. Wrote about it a little bit earlier today, a piece on Myers Leonard. Ooh, Myers boy. did not have the most cheery exit interview. I mean, I, I guess let's let's take a look at Myers himself. Um, he said uh, that he wanted to be in Portland, but he did not. He knows that such things are not always in his hands. Um, he talked extensively about the injuries that he had sustained. Um, said it was a long season for him coming off the shoulder, extensive rehab, wasn't able to train at a high level last summer, set him back with his legs and core strength and everything, and went from basically zero to 100% and never got feeling good. It's affirmed that he wanted to stay, but sounded like, hmm, he didn't know if that was in the future. What do you make of Myers? Uh, this is something I've, I've kind of hinted around really for the past seven or eight months, I never thought Myers fully healed. It, you Just something about him just didn't look right. And I don't mean that as an excuse for his play this season. It's just that, that that's the nature of it. I mean, we, we heard whispers and murmurs of it all season long that he still wasn't right. And mentally, man, that can play on you. And we, last year you saw Myers when he went without his contract. And he said that that much weighed on him. You know, he bet, against the, uh, he bet on himself and he didn't come out ahead. So uh, the, the mental part of this thing, it, it seems to be a huge issue. And you, you compact that with, with injury problems. And, yeah, man, I, I can see how it's just it, it weighs on the guy. And you had multiple people come out and, and basically say the same thing. Yeah, we had a couple of cryptic allusions to Myers' state of mind. Uh, C.J. McCollum uh, from CSNNW Myers is one of the most genuinely nice guys I've come into contact with. When he dedicates himself, the results will come. And then Neil Olshay uh, had him saying that it, it, it was a constant day-to-day, uh, -day, sorry, not constant, it was a day-to-day -day process to keep his spirits up. Now, I mean, it could be garden-level feeling not great, uh, trying, struggling to find a role. Do you think there might be some motivational stuff in there as well? I mean, what have you heard or what do you sense uh, about Meyer's motivation? I think it's, it's, a, it's a big problem. I think the injuries played into it. I think his lack of a defined role played into it. Um, I mean, it may not sound like a huge deal, but I think the, his dog, you know, getting, was it cancer, leukemia, something along those lines? Mm. I mean, he just got married. He's, he's got the weight of a new contract on his mind. He's trying to recover from injury. I mean, we want to talk about, oh, woe is me. He's making $10 million a year. This, this is still a human being and a young yeah. human being at that. I mean, he's still a young man. I mean, he's what, 24 years old? I, I mean, that's, yeah. that's an awful lot to put on a guy. And it, yeah, that's just and tough one to thing you out. find is that uh, money doesn't make problems go away. It can help distract you for sure. It can buffer the real time effects on, on, you know, obviously your living status and your basic security. 
But money doesn't. A ten million dollar contract doesn't change anything. It doesn't about make you healthy. Job stress about maturity, yeah. about physical health. Exactly. Now, Myers. I, I don't perceive Myers necessarily as being not a hard worker. Um, at the same time, that quote from okay, McCollum, man. I mean, yeah. La, well, when, when he dedicates I mean, himself, even, the results will come. That that, that, that sounds like yeah. he's saying. He's not dedicating himself. And that, that kind of flies in the face of everything I've ever heard about Myers and his, and his work ethic. I mean, everything I've ever heard about the guy is he's a complete gym rat. I don't know if that means Myers doesn't dedicate himself to film study. He doesn't dedicate himself to the game plan. He doesn't dedicate himself to um, growing in a particular way. I mean, that, that's, that's a really cryptic message, it sounds like, from McCollum, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit. It, it does fly in the face of most of what we've seen. At the same time, I mean, what it could be just a focus issue. Because I mean, even in the in the course of this three minutes we've been talking about Myers, last year he didn't have a contract. It weighed on his mind. This year he has a contract. It weighed on his mind. Uh, well, <laughs> if everything's weighing on your mind all your time it does become kind of a distraction. I'm not saying, I mean, these are not things that you can just say, hey man, get over it or do whatever. It's, it's not nearly that easy. But at some point you do say, at what point is Myers going to have a breakout and or trouble-free season? It always seems something physically is wrong. It always seems some distraction is there. He's basically had one really, really great year uh, in five. And other than that, it's awful hard to overlook some of this stuff. And it's also awful hard to overlook the fact that Portland center went down. All right. Portland needed somebody in the middle. The pump was primed, could have dominated there if he was capable. Myers played less than 30 minutes in four games total. Uh, it, it, it was there. I mean, right around 30 He played just over, what, four minutes in, in, in game four before coming back out on, and closing out? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it just what it wasn't there. And what when are you going to be in more need of Myers Leonard? I get that he's playing power forward. Uh, I get that, but at the same time, they needed somebody to step up, and they were they were running Aminu basically. It's there. They were playing five guys six eight and under, and Myers sitting there at seven feet with a skill set uh, and the ability to shoot threes, which by the way, um, some of their forwards didn't have. And he didn't make it on the floor. That may be some writing on the wall. Considering, uh, let's also consider writing on the wall. It's, it's not only just, it's not cryptic. It's in neon. O'Shea said it. Festus Azili not coming back in a Trailblazers uniform. Yeah, there's there's no mincing of words there. Yeah, it's not terribly surprising. We knew that was coming, given his, given his contract status and the, the fracas kind of that happened mid-season. But you cannot escape the parallels to, you know, Vince McMahon coming on WCW TV and saying to Jeff Jarrett, you're fired. And like, wow, that's kind of a public. You don't usually get that out of an interview like, well, we're considering our options and blah, blah, blah. No, yeah, no he's no, not coming you, You're done. We're, we're, the the option on your contract is not being picked up. You don't usually expect to hear that in the exit interview either. I mean, that's exactly. it's, it's usually something you expect. Hey, we're exploring our options, da 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 da, like you said, and we'll make a decision around draft time. No, no, anybody who wants him, we're not picking up his option. Go ahead. I mean, yeah. that, that, that's. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get much more blunt than than the, the way Olshay put it. 
Yep, bye, Festus. Yep. I mean, I guess that's all the attention we'll give it. Although, and again, keep in mind, this is the takeaway point. In August, well, I mean, the Blazers don't have room to sign people unless they make some pretty significant trades. Not only do they not have money, they're just not going to have roster space. Well, hey, so this if, may if not happen. Coming back, I mean, that's 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 at least that solves one issue as far as roster space is concerned. Theoretically, they're bringing in three draft picks, though. So, I mean, they basically have to get rid of everybody who's on a non-guaranteed contract to fit in those players. Yeah, I mean... So there's no one else. I mean, they can only take 15. At least if you're Pat Connaughton or Tim Quarterman, you didn't have Olshay saying he's not, neither one of those guys are going to be back next year. You know? Yeah. I mean, it, if you're those guys, you're at least taking sauce as well. At least I'm not on his boat. Yeah, exactly. But... That said, the takeaway point, again, remember the hype and the fanfare and the Azili Fest and the Savior and O'Shea turned around the offseason last year with this signing. Okay, you, you are welcome to bring a box of salt uh, to the party because we've told you this is how this works and it, you see how it works. And one year ago, this, this guy was the savior, and this year this guy is publicly decried in an exit interview. So he's the goat yeah, in, the, in, in the in the non-operative sense. I mean, yeah, he used to he was the goat last year. He's the new goat now. Yeah. Uh, never suited up. Yeah. So just yeah. Anyway, that's the takeaway. Keep that in mind when we start talking about things in August. It might not necessarily be wrong. Uh, <laughs> let's go through some of the other players. Um, Evan Turner, I thought, you know... Probably the had, best the best interview of all of them. Yeah, which you expect, because, yeah. I mean, Turner... Look, Evan Turner, his head is on straight. He's, he's not only a veteran, Evan Turner knows which way the world works, and he's comfortable with his spot in it. It's one of the things you like about him. By the way, despite him being decried by many people, I actually thought he had a pretty good series against Golden three, State. He played three good games. He had one stinker of a game but yeah if you're ranking guys and how they played in this series dame eh, then probably cj uh he he was terrible in game four but um then probably turner 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 yeah. acquitted himself really well on on both ends um he had a couple plays that were a little wonky but i mean that's kind of evan turner's mo but he also had some fantastic stints um scoring the ball distributing the ball his defense um at times really bothered people um, I mean, you're really, that's what you're asking him. And, and I don't, you can separate Evan Turner, the player from Evan Turner, the contract. As, yeah. as weird as that may be, Evan Turner is not worth what he's being paid on the Blazers on the, on the open market, but that's what they signed him for. And that's what they're going to continue to pay him for. So you're hoping to get the best out of him. And, and really if you're getting 15, five and five out of him, which is probably close to what he averaged this, this series, that's pretty, pretty decent. I mean, you, well, that, and that, that's about as good as you're going to get for your, your sixth man. Well, and look at it this way. If the Blazers played Evan Turner ball, I mean, did you see him post up? I mean, he, when he was posting smaller guards, which is something that, you know, Wesley Matthews began to do. Uh, yeah. They, 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 they played fine Steph Curry. They, they ran the fine yeah. Steph Curry offense, and, it, and at times right. it was great. The problem was when the ball was, was swung, when the double team came, it was landing in Aminu or Harkless's hands, and they, they just weren't knocking down shots. So the effect Which is not lost. Evan Turner's fault. No. Yeah, so look, and if you're talking about players who played above expectations in this series, how who played the most above expectations? I think it's, it's, it's Turner, Turner, hands down. Yeah. 
Yeah. So in any case, um, he, he gave a great exit interview, I thought. He's like, I don't care about my contract. It doesn't matter. I think that's essentially correct, that once that's signed, it all goes away. The only time you think about it is when your check gets auto-deposited and you get <laughs> to buy your next really fancy car. But that's not basketball. I mean, that's the rest of your life, just like it is for the rest of us. So, I mean, hats off to Turner for the series. Hats off to Turner for his really, attitude. Really, the season. Yeah, I mean, in, in many ways. Going from, I mean, I, I absolutely eviscerated him early on because his, his, his performance and his play early on was, was some of the worst that I, I'd seen in recent memory. So to go from that to not just okay, but more than productive and probably more than you bargained for out of him, that's, that's, that's a hell of a growth curve. Yeah, and just, I think a lot of people still have buyer's remorse. Not Evan Turner's fault. There are other people to blame for that and uh, other things to have more remorse over. Um, Alan Crabb. Oh, um, boy. If there's a quote that came out of this that I just I had to reread about four times, Alan Crabb saying he needs to find other ways to be more effective or to be effective other than just standing in the corner. Wow. Well, yeah. see, that kind of starts with skill set. Um, if Alan Crabb could put the ball on the floor, he could probably do things other than stand in the corner. That, that's kind of an Alan, yeah. that's kind of an Alan Crabb problem. I mean, if you want to point to recent memory, Wesley Matthews was a guy who didn't have a three point shot. Then he had a three point shot. Then he couldn't dribble. Then he could dribble. Then he couldn't post up, and he could post up. I mean, if you want to expand your game, you need to expand your game. And that to you me know what I read like in that crab. Straight up, yeah, you you read up, read into that like. Mm. Maybe I don't have a big enough role on this team or mm -hmm. in this offense. And he sure didn't in, in the Golden State series. I mean, that's for sure. At the same time, there's probably a bunch of blame to go around for that. I mean, one is, like you said, Crab himself. Is he aggressive? What's his skill set? Number two, is the priority integrating him when you're doing Lillard and McCollum? And then you've got other new people, and then you've got to balance the floor somehow. And then Nurkic shows up to steal all your thunder, by the way. Uh, and, and then number three, well, the Blazers resigned him. I mean, they knew they were traffic jammed, and they wanted him back. And, you know, you can't blame Crab for saying, okay, you want to be back for this? I'm happy for the money. But at the same time, when have you ever gone to me consistently? When do I get to shine? That problem, I think, is not going away. Yeah, no, I mean, when you look at what Alan Crabb has, has done this season, I think there's obviously a lot more that he could bring to the table on, on a regular basis. And I, you touched on it partly in that, yeah, it's partly game plan, but the other part of it really is you can't, you're on the floor 30 minutes a night. You can make things happen. If you force you know, your shots or you, you make yourself more valuable, that's how you get more chances. When you cap, I mean, the guy's capitalizing on the opportunities he takes, right? Well, yeah. I mean, he's, the, he's basically the best three-point shooter in the NBA, which is a godsend. But somehow, and I think this gets to the construction of the team, somehow the best three-point shooter in the NBA, it's a little wonky, and it really shouldn't be. And it's one thing when some of your guys aren't performing. The Blazers have that, too. It's another thing when a guy is basically being peak at a skill, and you're not 
that skill isn't quite translating into wins. It isn't translating into consistency, and it isn't translating into, into him feeling like he has a role and belongs. That's a whole different issue. I mean, it's not that it's an empty stat, but is it? A, it it's more box score than it is contributory. And that's a problem for Portland because they don't have room for just box score stats. They need night in, night out contributors. And there were times where Alan Crabb was a phenomenal contributor. And you can see those flashes. It's kind of reminiscent of Batum. And the problem is, is that Batum gave you more value in other areas where Alan Crabb just doesn't deliver that. Batum could create off the bounce. He could put the ball on the floor occasionally. And defensively, he was a Swiss Army knife. Now, Crab looks like he has the potential to do some of those things, but whether or not they actually translate in reality are two totally different things. And I think that might be part of it, is that I don't... The defense, at least by the eye test, just wasn't whatever Mike and Mike in the days of yore were seeing in Alan Crab, and I believe, I don't think they were wrong, there was potential there. But I didn't see that potential translate into greatness very often. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that may be part of it. It could be the Blazers are expecting, look, if you're going to be that key cog, we need you to be a complete player. Irony is that none of their other guys are. But, okay, uh, Crab didn't do that, so there is room to improve there. Now, being becoming more of a complete player, Noah Vonley, I mean, he had a good Golden State series, I tend to think that a lot of that was because he was another one of those guys that the Warriors just didn't care about. But, hey, I mean, rebounding was there. Some scoring was there. Um, certainly this is better Vonley than we saw last year or even at the beginning of this year. Um, he says he's excited to work with Yusuf Nurkic, which he should be because he should <laughs> he be excited to be starting, you know. So what, what, do, you, what do you make of uh, Noah Vonley and the season he had and the, and the interview he had? Uh, a few months ago, I said, what does Noah Vonley bring to this team? And it, was, it wasn't a net negative. It wasn't a net positive. He was just there. And that was... I mean, that was really, I think, or I feel at least, that it was an accurate description of that current situation and that current time period. Well, coinciding with the arrival of Nurkic, all of a sudden, everything that he can do or will do was brought to the fore in, you know, being that guy that sits in the, in the short corner, being the guy that's active on, on rebounds, being the guy that, that can come out and apply pressure defensively on the perimeter for one of the bigs and allow Nurkic to sit near the paint. I, I think he was a perfect support accentuating player to Nurkic. And sometimes that's what it takes is you need to be put in the right place and surrounded with the right people in order to make what you do come to the fore. And really, I mean, that, that, that same sentiment was echoed by Neil Olshay, who said that Noah Vonley's development excited him the most of any player this season. Well, that's pretty easy to uh. say because really, he's the only player that really developed, right? Yeah, I think so. But at the same time, absolutely props to Noah. I mean, props to, to everything that he accomplished this year. Ask me whether I want to go through another season, depending on that, or whether he's going to be the answer. Uh, I will probably give slightly less props. My result will, will be more measured. But, hey, I mean, let's not take it away. It is an exit interview. It's the season passed. I think Vonley, especially after Nurkic came, bravo, uh, found a way to contribute, uh, 
brilliant, less brilliant as far as exit interviews go. Mo Harkless. Oh, now, Lord. yeah, let's let's read this quote that we had on Blazers Edge for its entirety. What do you think the team needs next season? And Harkless says, it's hard to tell. I think this year was tough a little bit because I think I don't feel like we were able to find a real identity for most of the year. It's hard to play like that. It's hard to win like that, especially when you're matched up with a team like Golden State in the first round, who's been consistent all year with what they do and how they play, trying to adjust to that. I don't know if that was something we were ready for at that point. The Golden State stuff is obvious. The identity and lacking identity. I mean, is Harkless talking about the team or, himself. or is Harkless talking about his role? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the, when I first read that quote, that's the exact same thing that I thought was he could replace team with himself and be just as spot on. And I, I want to give Harkless some slack here because, you know, he went from starter to bench to starter to bench to featured player to not out on the floor. I mean, I like Terry Stotts' flexibility, and I like that he'll play the the hot man or the hot hand, and that he'll he's willing to ride certain things. But if there's one thing that's been very evident, Re Harkless, is that he needs consistency. He needs consistency in the rotation, in touches, in minutes, uh, and his role. Um, I mean, you saw the difference between last season when he went from afterthought to starter. He's, it wasn't just the fact that he was on the floor that he was contributing. It's the fact that he was contributing as he was on the floor. <laughs> Those two things were, were mutually inclusive. And when you don't have him on the floor consistently, he's not going to understand what his role is and what the identity and what they're actually asking of him. And the, and the ironic thing in all this is that Harkless brings to this team one thing in particular on the offensive end that they don't really have from anybody else, and that's the ability to cut and finish at the rim. There, there's nobody else on this roster that does that effectively. You could say Nurkic on the roll, but Aminu doesn't have the handle. Harkless actually showed a lot of growth in his post game. He was catching, showing nice footwork, and there were times when they featured that quite extensively, and then there were times they just went completely away from it. There, I would have loved to have seen Harkless post up Curry a few times to see what came out of that, that set, but that kind of goes away towards the identity aspect, because if you have Harkless in the post, then who's on the perimeter shooting if not Dame or CJ? Yeah, this is this is archetypal trailblazers here. So I don't think anybody's been yanked around more than Mo has. I mean, he he was alternately celebrated as the the savior. I mean, the pre-Nurkic savior anyway, and a, a guy who really was stepping up, giving the team everything it needed. He was at the beginning of the season. This is our guy, and then all of a sudden it becomes muddled, and then he's an afterthought. And obviously, under those conditions, it's hard to produce. But the other thing is, okay, Mo Harkless is not at the level yet, either in experience or talent, where you could necessarily object to that. It's in, it's he's in the fuzzy middle, like a mm -hmm. lot of the players. Like he's doing great, but he's also Mo Harkless, and if he doesn't do great, you can't really bring him back, and you can't adjust to make him do great because his great is not as good as Lillard's great and McCollum's great or someone else would be. You know, if this happened to Draymond Green, you'd be panicked, right? But Mo Harkless, you go, that's the breaks of the game. And that's exactly the conundrum that the Trailblazers find themselves in. And Harkless is a part of that and not necessarily solving that. And that really um, contributes to the, to the, I think, the lack of identity that he's, he's talking about. 
Exactly. And there's no, but the thing is, there's no identity to be found. I mean, we could talk about Stott's coaching all you want, but I mean, literally, he's coming to the table with a couple of aces and then a bunch of, you know, middle cards. And no matter how you shift around those fives and sixes and sevens, if the aces get cracked, you're not winning the hand. And so, I mean, there's this fantasy out there that if just this substitution would happen, if this rotation, if this consistency, if this right pep talk went on, then all of a sudden the team would turn it around like it was the movies. Uh, that's just not the way it works. Yeah, you can, you can stocks, fix one thing on, at one point. You're, you're going to have another thing that you're going to have to fix further down the pipeline. That, that's, that's really, yeah. when we talk about a flawed roster and, and understanding the current situation that the Blazers are in and how these players are siloed, just because you've, if you fix the, the, the Harkless issue, it doesn't all of a sudden give the team an identity. It gives Maurice Harkless an identity. And while that's a good thing, it doesn't ultimately solve you know problems X, Y, and Z that are down the line. Doesn't turn 41 wins into 54 wins, no. right? So uh, we have uh, Terry Stotts. Um, I, thought, I thought he looked pretty frustrated during most of the playoffs. <laughs> I mean, he was trying. He, he was, was trying, trying really hard. I mean... God bless him. You know, not only was he trying, uh, the, the comparison I used was a scrambling that Jack Ramsey used to do after all his players left yeah. or, you know, either the departed or got injured yep. or whatever. And it's like, you used to hear, hear Bill Shonley describe this. Like the coach is scrambling to find any kind of lineup that will work. And that basically described all, but the first three quarters of game one of this series. And, uh, a quote from Stotts in his exit interview, was this your most difficult season as a coach here? Yes, no question. Yes, no question. It was a difficult season. Basically, we overachieved the first four I was here. This is the first year we didn't exceed expectations. By virtue of that, it makes it a little bit disappointing, a little frustrating. From the tone and the way Stotts looked, I think you can eliminate those a little bit. <laughs> I think it was probably a lot of bit. How do you how do you feel Terry did in this series and in this year overall? I mean, I think Stotts did a masterful job managing what he had to manage. I mean, you're integrating a new guy in Turner. Um, you go in thinking you're, you're, you've got a group of healthy big men in uh, Azili, uh, Leonard, Ed Davis. Uh, Mason Plumley ends up being really the only guy that you have that you can count on. That was a guy that, you know, they all loved and... and uh, appreciated as, as uh, a player, a contributor, and, and really a friend on this team. And he's gone, and now you bring in Nurkic, you got to integrate him. I mean, there were so many bumps and, and, and bangs and hurdles. And there's so many just, I mean, the, the platitudes are a mile long. But, I mean, the fact that he was able to, to, to drive this team, navigate this team to a 500 record, considering the, the way they played in, in up until December, is a minor miracle. So, I mean, for Stotts, he, to me, is, is kind of the hero in all this because this isn't his roster. This is the roster he was given to work with. And somehow, some way, he made it work. Yeah, I mean, I basically agree. Not much more to add to that. If there's, if there's an interesting part to this, it's where it's always been, which, of course, is Neil O'Shea. We already got Von Ley's development exciting him. We've got... Festus Azili isn't coming back. Another tidbit from the exit interview. 
Oh, well, first of all, did the Blazers ever think about tanking? Never, Olshay said. You can't build a winning culture by losing. I think that's actually fairly obvious. Okay. As much as we talk about tanking, it's not an executive going, hey, everybody, let's lose. It's basically, you know, it happens through quote-unquote injuries. It happens through lineups. It happens through a ton of things, you know, trades Game sometimes. Management. Yeah, that kind of thing. Now, I believe him. Did the Blazers ever think about tanking? Never. I, I believe that is true. Uh, but at the same time, I, I disagree know, with you there to an extent. I mean, when they, when they made the Nurkic deal and he did that interview with Brooke Olsen Dam, he said unequivocally they were looking towards a draft. Mm-hmm. I mean, at that point in time, that team was so bad that I, I, they had to be entertaining discussions of shutting the season down. They, they may not have gone that way, but they had to at least have looked at it. Possibly, but there's no, I mean, the trade itself obviously wasn't tanking, not only just because of how it turned out, but because Mason Plumley wasn't on a contract. So that was free money, if there is such a thing on such a bloated salary cap roster for the Blazers. You know, they, they had to move him or they'd get nothing for him. So they were making a move forward with that. Obviously, they got the draft pick. I, I, I don't disagree that had Nurkic not worked out, and by the way, I don't necessarily disagree that Olshay didn't expect Nurkic to work out this well this <laughs> soon. That said, there's no tank in any of that. I get it. That's that's fine. Now, so, I mean, on the, on the BS meter, that one is pretty green. That one's okay. Now, Neil Olshay on this year's draft class, it's strong. I think it's taken on mythic proportions. And guess what? Conveniently, the most intriguing part of the draft is its depth. Now, I don't, again, I'm weird. They never thought about tanking, but now it's about the depth in the draft. Huh. Yeah, well, well, what, but still, I mean, but the depth would argue with the tanking, you know, not tanking because, hey, you don't need a lottery pick. You can score really well with a lower pick which conveniently the Blazers have three of. Now, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily disagree that this draft class might be strong. I don't even necessarily disagree that it might be deep. It tapers off you pretty heard, good after the lottery selections. Have you heard anyone say mythic proportions because of its depth? Have you heard that anywhere one outside of six, sure. Olshay just saying it? One, one through six, sure. There's a, there's are some fantastic players in that range and, and in that scope. And, I mean, that's it, it, it may even be mythic, but outside that group, not a chance. <laughs> this feels like, and granted, Joe Freeman, whose tweet we're taking this from, this is spliced, so I'm not sure what exactly came in there. But There, this there feels could be something like, in between. Yeah, like, and we don't have any of those picks or something like that. But um, without going too far out of context or making too much of it, the way it's presented, this is classic. I mean, the true statement, uh, draft class is strong. True statement in a sense, taken on mythic proportions. True statement in a sense that has to do with depth, if you're counting one through six or the lottery or whatever, Taken in aggregate, what does it look like? This is a strong class, mythic proportions. It's deep. We have draft picks, is the part unsaid. You know, yeah. late draft picks. That's not, okay. That's, here's what I want to know. Here's my big question. If this is a mythically 
deep draft, if that's exactly what this quote means. And by the way, there's now plausible deniability in this quote that that's not what I meant, but let's just say that is what it meant. Can we then finally hold somebody accountable if the Blazers don't turn around after having three draft picks in this mythically deep draft? Are we allowed then to say that this maybe isn't going the way it's intended? Because we had some kind of mythically awesome needle-moving trade, supposedly. Then we had mythically awesome cap space to you know, use the flexibility to get mythical free, mythically awesome free agents who ended up 41 and 41 and $140 million cap. Um, so and throw on top of that, he, he said he, that they spent two years worth of money in one year last season. That was another quote from, from Neil O'Shea in the offseason. So, as, I mean... As if that was inevitable. <laughs> as, and as if that just... Okay, if you spend two years worth of money on a Maserati, you are good. If you spend two years worth of money on a Yugo and an old Hyundai, maybe we yeah might have something to talk about. So, I mean, again, I... It's not, the point isn't necessarily to needle here. It's rather to say, because this feels like exactly the kind of quote that always gets churned over. And it's like all of a sudden it starts showing up in the comments on our site and in the ether somewhere. Mythically deep draft. We've got three picks. Mythically deep draft. It tested well with, 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 you know, with, with test groups, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. No. Uh, or if it is, take a choice. Either it's not that deep and this isn't that significant, or if it is that significant, it better work. We need to say results. And I if think if you say results, if, they, if they don't get it done this this off season, as far as adding, you know, real components to this roster and the, and the roster structure is starting to take some semblance of form, where at least you know seventy five percent, eighty percent of the roster is really set. Then I think you can say that the 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 heat on the seat is is definitely going to be be felt, you know, come January February of next year. I would be way more impressed if we hadn't said that before each of the three last summers. <laughs> I mean, it's just basically every year it's this, and every year it's like eh. now. Nurkic, of course, will be the great help. We'll talk about that later. I mean, that, that will be the big hope that things will finally turn around. And then perhaps some of these other moves in the wake will have the significance they're supposed to, but I'd like to see it before I believe it. And speaking of, let's, uh, let's go here. Uh, this is a good a place to end. It was the big explosion of the day. <sighs> so <laughs> John Canzano of the Oregonian pens a column questioning the Blazers' culture, basically compared to Golden States, but also in general. All of a sudden, you have Jason Quick coming in and saying he's never been in the locker room, et cetera, et cetera, kind of blindsiding him from the side. Uh, and then Olshay... Um, responds to the comments. Yeah, saying, I was oblivious to that, that, that uh, like, it doesn't matter, I don't read the guy... Um, and then there was basically just shade you know, being thrown everywhere. Yes. Yeah. If there were, if there were any more shade, I mean, we would, we would not need the ozone. Um, so Olshay says he's, he's doesn't go in the locker room, has no idea about the locker room culture basically, or how they feel. <clears throat> not sure about that one. Um, last summer, 
we took care of guys. Chris Kamen never complained. Uh, Damien believes in us. Mm, I, none of that. I'm not finding this real convincing. Having watched this team through December and January, Maurice Harkless said they didn't have an identity. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, basically falling apart. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's okay. Look, do I think the Blazers' culture is tragic and ir- irreparably bad? No, this isn't the Sacramento Kings. Think, no, do I think the Blazers have a solid culture, a winning culture? Not at this point. Um, Are they it, working it, towards it? it? Sure. Hopefully, but you know what? To me, I mean, there's culture and then there's selling, you know, basically. And we get a lot of selling, and I know that that's directed outward. I don't know that it's directed inward, but, you know, you look at the contracts signed last summer, and a lot of people really, really believed in that playoff run last year, and that was heralding something. You don't pay this kind of money for a first-round exit. You don't pay this kind of money for a team that you don't hope is going to the conference finals, and they weren't even close to that, and they weren't really close to that last year either. So you've got to believe that some of the culture involves some of that PR, some of that selling, and you know, I think Olshay said it himself in another part of his exit interview, what was the problem at the beginning of the year? Well, I think all the guys, they started 7-4 and and just assumed they were a second-round playoff team instead of working to be a second-round playoff team. That's culture. Yeah, I mean... I think some of the, the shots that, that Gonzano took were, were unfair. He's not a guy that, that's been in the locker room all season, so I don't think he has total firsthand experience. I, I'm sure he has sources, and I'm sure he's interacted with these guys, but from what I know and from what I understand, that Gonzano's access to uh, players is also limited by the Trailblazers. So th- there's, there's some things to be said for, for both sides here. Um, I, I think that the Blazers culture is far from being complete. And like you said, I don't believe it to be toxic, but I, I think a, a critical analysis of it in a fair sense is, is, is more than uh, a fair argument or column to make. I just don't think that Gonzano himself was in a position to make. And really there's, there, or there aren't too many people I think that are in a fair objective sense, able to make that with both the access and experience um, to, to back that up and, and make a comprehensive argument one way or the other. And I think that part falls on Neil O'Shea, and that's intentional in that he wants to outwardly project, like you said, what their culture is because it becomes a, a selling point. And that's just the way that he operates. And whether or not that's good or bad, that's for other people to decide. But I, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a fair question to ask or a fair comparison to ask when you talk about how great the culture is in Portland and yet when you stack it up against the Warriors, and we're not just talking about talent, we're talking about culture, that it doesn't come anywhere close. Yeah, and will and cohesiveness, granted, more veterans and all that. But, I mean, look, do you have to be in the locker room to have observed those games in December when the Blazers just fell apart? I mean, well, Let's call it what it was. Like it, was it was the worst Blazer basketball in the modern era. I would have rather watched uh, an entire season of the Jail Blazer era Blazers than that month of basketball in December. That was the I don't know, man. Two th- 2005 was bad. I, I, I've almost it had, I had to watch any more of that from December. Darius Miles headbangs, I, I would have been all for. 
that's 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 the level. I mean, it was it was physically. I've mentioned this a few times. It was physically painful to watch that level of basketball because there were twelve guys on the court at any given you know cycling through the rotation who just didn't give a damn. It was it was right. and, and, and Evan Turner basically said as much in, in his exit interview saying it was a really hard, difficult season to get adjusted to because we went through this times where the the defense was just so terrible and they didn't understand why and the effort and the effort and questioning so many different things. So yeah, it's it's it, like I said, it's a fair question to ask and discuss when you're talking about culture, because culture plays into effort. Right. Well and also you don't have to really be in the locker room to understand that even mediocre free agents have mostly been turning down the Blazers, that whatever sales job that goes about the Portland winning uh, aspirations and their ability to put it out there on the floor and you really want to belong here. I mean, the players are, are playing against these guys. They're watching it from six inches away. And they see in some measure that that's not there. They're not flocking to sign up. They're not believing it. So something is, is awry there. Remember I think, a couple years ago, way, we, we, were, we were talking about who wouldn't want to play with Damian Lillard, a young rising right. superstar in the league. Well, who has wanted to come play with Damian Lillard? They, they, they couldn't well, convince I mean, a Hassan Whiteside. They couldn't convince a Dwight Howard. They, 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 they couldn't convince Chandler Parsons. They couldn't get a Chandler Parsons. I mean... That's that's what I mean. The, the perception versus reality is the, those bars are are quite different. Yeah, and we've we've helped that. I mean, we like everybody on the outside. I mean, even now, it's everybody's quick to parrot it. I saw this, like, oh, John, you haven't been in the locker room. Canzano, you can't say this. You haven't. As soon as somebody said it. Now, all of a sudden, everybody really wants to believe in the team and believe in its goodness no matter what. So they start parroting stuff, whether or not it's logical, whether or not it makes sense. That creates a certain erosion. There's not a standard. You don't have to be good. You just have to sound good. You don't have to produce. You just have to sell. Now, I'm not saying that's all there is to it. Obviously, there is more. The Blazers want to be good. They want to produce. They want to be world champions. I believe that. But there's a certain sense where there's an accountability. Your feet are to the fire. There's a difference between great basketball and not great basketball. Good defense and horrible defense. Winning 60 games and winning 41 games. And you know what? From most of what you see out there, you wouldn't know that there was a difference. And it's called loyalty or it's called whatever, being faithful to the team to not mention that there's a difference. Well, no, I'm sorry. At some point, that cripples you. And it especially cripples you if you start believing your own publicity. And I think that the Blazers have in some senses. So I would tend to agree that the Blazers probably have a cultural issue right now. But of course... We're not in the locker room. Three guesses why. And so we'll be told that we cannot make that claim either. Well, who can then? And who's going to? Because something's not going right here. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's... where the, I don't want to see where there's smoke, there's fire. Because that, that, that paints this situation as a little more dire than I think that it really is. When we say that there's a, there's a culture problem, at least when I say there's a culture problem... That means it's it's not a fantastic culture. I mean, how can you have a fantastic culture? Not a winning culture. culture. Yeah, let's, I mean, it's, let's it's a, say it. In the last two years, they've won eighty-five games. That that's not 40, bad, but that's not a, a winning culture. 
mid mid forties last year looked like manna from heaven. Yeah. I mean, that's okay. That's okay. I get it. That's that's not bad. It's not bad to root for that. It's not bad to celebrate. It's not bad to celebrate making the playoffs. I did. I hope they make it. I also know the difference between that and actually winning. And it seems like that line is blurring. I think the league would like it to blur, by the way, because you know what? When everybody feels that way, 30 teams are super profitable instead of just the best teams being super profitable. So there's incentive to sell rather than to be good. But I think that it's incumbent upon a lot of us to say, okay, yay, support the team, hope they win, uh, love talking about them and all that. At the same time, we're not stupid. You can critically analyze things and you can be negative on things if there's a reason to and you're not just making it up. I mean, when there's enough to back it up, then I think at some point in time, you you have to kind of peek behind the curtain. You have to Wizard of Oz it, you know? If if you don't, you're being disingenuous at that point. And I I think you're you're doing yourself a disservice as as a fan and, and as a really a, 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 a buyer of, of the service. And by the way, when someone says something, we get to think about it. We get to talk about it. It's not, you don't take a bazooka to, yeah. uh, you know, uh, okay, maybe the take isn't the greatest. I'm not saying there are a lot of bad takes out there. Sure. And people make mistakes and people analyze things wrong. That happens all the time. That's the name of the game. I mean, it's, it's you analyze and then you see what happens. But at the same time, there's, there's really a sense that if you're not with the party line, then you can't come to the party. That's dangerous. I mean, that we're seeing the effects of that across the country. It just kind of makes me itch no matter how good or bad the take is. That's not the basis on which we should be operating. And, and you know, I'll stick my hand up and I'll say, A, that sucked. Uh, B, you know, I don't agree with everything John Canzano says or does by a long shot, but he may have a no, point. No, Canzano that, is, is, it, is that like he just fired, you know, the whole nine yards and, and every shot landed here. There are right. definitely I some mean, things here that, that, you know, I think he was off on. And there are some claims right. that he may have not necessarily abused, but taken advantage of uh, the the media access that he had for family members. Sure, and but then those, okay, are, those are fair I mean. criticisms. How, how does that wait? No, how does that affect his point? No, Who it cares? doesn't. It takes away from. It the doesn't point. affect yeah. the point. It distracts from the point. And you know what? Uh, I w- I will go on record and I will say there's a difference between the Warriors' culture and the Blazers' culture right now. Oh yeah, I mean, I'll just, there's no doubt. I don't think that. I don't think yeah, that's you a know, real you know what that culture looking, is? It's four zero. Yeah. yeah. Which is where we started. So, okay, that might be a great place to leave it. We will be back uh, next week along with, uh, of course, Team Mom. Tara will be along with you and some other folks. We're going to be podcasting it up uh, all summer long. We'll give you various takes and various aspects of the offseason. The draft, of course, free agency, trades, which there's got to be some. Uh, We'll see what happens uh, until then. Uh, For Dan Morang, I'm Dave Deckard saying thanks for being with us this week, and we'll see you again soon.